0: Question The jewelers at Blue Nile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to Blue Nile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. nile.com code LISTEN.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: Hello, everyone, and thank you again for coming to "Been on our Mind podcast. I know that there are plenty of other podcasts out there, and it means a lot to me to have you tuning into mine. Um So today's episode is featuring Heather Roxborough. She's a clinical psychologist, and we had such wonderful conversations, and I'm really looking forward to you hearing it, and I hope that you gain some wisdom from the conversation. I know that I grew through our conversation, and it felt very timely um, to have her on as a guest. If you're new here to Been On Our Mind podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. It means so much to me to have your listening ears. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, follow, subscribe on any of your listening platforms. And please also go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, apparently, that's the best way to get reviews and get more listeners. So, yeah, that means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, Grab a cup of coffee or tea and settle on in, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation.
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Spring is my favorite
0: time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk,
1: Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
3: All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: okay, we can get it. Oh my gosh. Actually, I have to say, like, it's really nice to meet you because I've never actually seen you in person. I've only ever known you on Facebook. This is so
2: true. So this is
4: cool. This it's is cool. cool. It, it is enjoying, cool. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Nice, to, nice to formally meet you as well and yeah. virtually, because it's like, what is formal? Shake your hand. There are no hands. Um, <laughs> so anyways, thank you for being here today with me, to, um, Heather. Thank you. So I am curious, how are you doing? There's a lot going on in the world, but how are you doing?
4: Um, I think... Uh, I'm doing really well, actually. Um, all things considered, um, I'll follow that up with, uh, being a psychologist and holding space for what everyone's going through in these times and also going through my stuff in these times. I have to be more vigilant than ever about self care and how I'm managing my own world, So while I don't um, claim to have it all figured out or to be perfect in any way, I have certainly had to up my own self-care game and self-awareness of what I'm going through. So I can stay on top of that Mm -hmm. in order to be there for my clients and my profession. That's so important
2: to like cultivate that personal space, especially while you're holding the space for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there you go. You're, you're one of our space holders and that's so important and vital and needed right now. And that's kind of why I brought you on the podcast today because you are a mental health professional, you're a clinical psychologist and you have stories and you have things that you want to share and it's very welcomed and people need that extra guidance sometimes. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so another question that I have before we jump into your work and everything, but what Mm -hmm. has been on your mind lately?
4: That's a good question. I knew you were going to ask that and it still felt fresh when you asked it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, a lot has been on my mind in general. Um, I think in many ways I've had more time to think. So just a lot more thoughts in general. Um, I'm just moving out of two weeks of vacation and back into work. So that transition has been on my mind. Um, And I may reference highly sensitive people in, in like later at some point in our discussion, but I'm a highly sensitive person. And I've been thinking about that. Like, how am I going to transition from all this time for me, like back into lots of busyness and lots of activity and like potential overstimulation. And so that highly sensitive person making a transition just is basic from like vacation back to work. I've been really thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess if, if I also like think about the broader perspective of things, like we're all in a transition right now. And I have been wondering about different people with different, um, personality traits or mental health traits and how they're making that transition, like the broader transition as well. And how might it be unique for highly sensitive people or any other like group of people that are going through this collective transition? Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes
2: sense. It makes total sense and I yeah. actually speak to something that I've been processing and feeling within myself as well because I'm also I consider myself a highly sensitive person also. <laughs> and I know that there are like festivals starting up and that's one of my like most favorite things but there's this big part of me that's like, "Oh, I'm I'm not ready for those crowds yet. How am I going to react?" can I even hold myself when I'm all around those people? Like there's so many, so many thoughts. And which kind of sparked a question that came into my mind as you were speaking is how, how do we hold, how do we navigate those thoughts and how do you guide people? I guess is what my question within that. like, what would your, your advice be?
4: (laughs) Yeah. About the reconnecting with people. Yeah.
2: Well, like, especially specifically having all of those thoughts and like those anxieties that are coming up and everything like that.
4: Yeah. I, I think, well, (laughs) I'm stuck between like my notes and like just (laughs) spontaneous answering, but I have many answers for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think having time to yourself to let, uh, to distill some of the, like, when everything's like stirred up, it's really hard to find your ground and your center. Mm -hmm. So having time for yourself to like set some intentions and feel your own energy and your own intentions and your own ground, and center. Like that is so important in this time. Um, one thing like, uh, like I went for a walk actually before we went, just to see what my ideas were like Mm -hmm. that I wanted to get across. And I think, like, I think we all personally, I believe we all need to develop a practice of deep reverent listening to the self and deeper perhaps than ever before. Yeah, because I understand what you mean exactly about the festivals and being in around big groups and things like that. I understand exactly what you mean. And I think we're all going to have have a lot of shoulds. Like, I should be able to go to this festival. I should be able to go to this craft fair. I sh- you know, I should be able to sit in a lecture hall with a bunch of students. Mm-hmm. Well. I I, I'm supposed to, I should, we're going to have a lot of that dialogue, including the, I used to do this with no problem. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have to kind of move past those and not, and listen to like that real, like the honest truth of what we need. Like, do I need space today? Mm -hmm. Do, can I go to half a lecture, but then I just need to like, go for a walk or go to the bathroom or like take a break halfway through. Like, what are my needs? Because they are going to be different than ever before. Um, Not so alien, (laughs) but they're going to be like coming in at unexpected times um, differently than they would have before we've all lived through this pandemic. So like a deep reverent listening to the self is going to be important when we're alone and also when we're with others and to take gentle and proactive actions to listen to how our needs are changing or different than what they used to be. And that's okay to respect that in yourself and to respect that in others.
2: Wow. I love that. I love that. And that just the deep listening, like that deep reverence for the self and, and, I think there's, there's definitely some beauty within the whole pandemic as difficult and as traumatizing as it has been for everyone, myself included. Um, I, I can only speak for, for myself at, in this moment, but like I've ha- had the luxury of being able to have a lot of space in order to like really root down and find that and listen to that voice. And mm-hmm there was a question that came up in my mind again is like how for people that are navigating and that, cause we're all walking around with trauma now we are mm-hmm. so yeah. many different layers of trauma. Mm-hmm. And so like for people that are navigating, how, how are they that they're not so used to like
3: mm.
2: dealing with their trauma? Like how are they supposed mm-hmm. to hear and trust that self when they don't know what
4: that has always been. Does that make sense? That totally <laughs> makes sense. I think this is an awesome question. Um, I think we all n- need to increase our emotional literacy. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but I made it up.
3: If it had, <laughs> I don't know if I made it up since <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> I think it's a um, word. But, okay, so <laughs> I didn't make
4: but yeah, like, I think mm-hmm. we all have a little bit more responsibility than we ever did before. Cause like so many of us, and it's, it's the way we're socialized. Like we go around ignoring our emotions mm-hmm. or our inner voice, our, our mm. deeper knowing. And it's like, I don't want to say it's okay, but there's no, it's like the way we're socialized. So it's like a natural outcome to separate from that knowing that voice that understanding of our own emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, so we do need practices like perhaps therapy or other good self-care practices or spiritual practices to bring that in. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, you're, so I think like to like take for anyone listening or, you know, to take a little bit of extra, um, responsibility for your own emotional literacy. And that could just Mm. mean like, Googling like emotional awareness. How do I identify my emotions? Like that, mm-hmm. pe- lots of people have to start there. How do I name my emotion? What am I feeling? Right. Because yes. that gets lost so often. Um, so, the basics of emotion regulation, emotional literacy are going to be important. And one practice I find useful, and I find myself teaching a lot in my practice. It's from dialectical behavior therapy and it's called wise mind. I don't know if you've ever heard
2: of no. it. No. So please indulge okay. me and the listeners. Sure.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so wise mind uh, is a practice where you would, you kind of look at how your, your reasonable mind is reacting. So our logical mind, which is an important part of our whole ways of knowing. So our logical mind and We also look at everything we're feeling in our emotional mind. So logical mind is often like calm, cool, and collected. And emotional mind can be more fiery or up and down or intense and has more momentum, but like often we have both sides of us going on the logical Mm -hmm. side and the emotional side, and they don't always match up. There's, there can be some clashes in there Mm -hmm. (laughs) and contradictions, but they're both really important ways of knowing about any particular situation. So when you're in a situation and you're not sure what to do, look at what your logical mind is saying, look at what your emotional mind is saying, and Mm -hmm. then, breathe in and sit with it all and thought and just like, don't try to figure it out, but allow the logic to be there and the emotions to be there. And eventually they blend together Mm -hmm. often in a felt sense, like a gut feeling where you might feel a warmth in your body or something like that, or Mm -hmm. just an intuitive knowing and wisdom emerges when we can sit long enough with both of our, our emotions and our logic. So when we learn this tool of this is my wise mind, which balances emotion and logic to get me to a deeper knowing mm. an inner knowing that I was, was kind of not tapping into before that is a very useful process for finding that voice that you're talking about.
2: Mm, I love yeah. that. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain that sure. between the two and the way that you described it was Very good. (laughs) I feel like I have no words there. Um, Yeah. So in your practice, what kind, what are the kind of things that you generally treat?
4: Yeah. So I, I treat post-traumatic stress disorder and other trauma related disorders. Um, I do see, um, veterans, military members, RCMP members, firefighters, mm-hmm. paramedics. So the, but I also treat PTSD in other community members as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but trauma related disorders is a big part of my practice, but, mm-hmm. and I also treat, um, mood disorders, depression, various anxiety disorders, um, I, I treat burnout and compassion fatigue. Mm. Um, I, I help, I, I help people learn about emotion regulation, interpersonal difficulties, how to navigate those kinds of things. Um, I feel like I'm leaving out. Yes. I, I also treat life transitions and adjustment disorders. That's actually among one of my favorite pieces to work with. Like, I I enjoy working with all of it, but that like life transitions and adjustments have like, they're really interesting time of life. And when someone comes in to get support with that, either because they have a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder, or just because they know they need extra support during this Mm -hmm. transition, like I really enjoy working with that. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: Um, And I also work with highly sensitive and highly empathic people. That's like a population I've worked with. Um, I did not learn about any of that in grad school, but life taught me everything I need to know about that. Well, not life, but life taught me that this is a real (laughs) population that just is not Mm -hmm. being seen through the traditional lens of clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of research on highly sensitive people and growing research on highly empathic people. And so I'm weaving that into my practice as it emerges. And that's an exciting part of my practice.
2: Cool. Can yeah. you just describe a little bit about what highly sensitive people are just for those that are listening that might not know?
4: Yes. <laughs> so highly sensitive people, uh, they, they have a lot of traits, uh, that in general makes them more sensitive than the average population. So about 15% of the population, 15 to 20 are highly sensitive. And I have a little acronym here just to kind of summarize it. Mm-hmm. So there, there's more to it than this, but, um, the acronym is does D O E S. So the first item D, uh, represents depth of processing. So, um, when, when, um, highly sensitive people are given information, they make more connections with it. They usually think about it a lot longer. Um, they're often, often, often told they're overthinking things. (laughs) Um, but they're actually just deeply processing things. Mm -hmm. Like they're connecting this to something that happened before some other visual information they have, like, it's just very deep processing, deep thinking, and it, it comes very naturally to the highly sensitive person. And other people may, may think that they're like slower or they're not understanding or they're shy, but they're really mm-hmm. just taking their time to like make a lot of connections. Um, and that's one of the things that highly sensitive people do have depth, depth of processing. Mm-hmm. They're they can also be prone to overstimulation because um, mm-hmm. their nervous systems are literally more sensitive. So they might um, notice uh, loud sounds, harsh fabrics, like, you know, um, harsh smells that other people aren't really registering. Um, this is all like a highly sensitive person is registering all of this. So they mm-hmm. could, they have a tendency towards overstimulation if they don't know how to manage that Mm -hmm. and overstimulation and social, like with social information and conversation can also happen. Um, but again, these are all manageable things when you know how to manage them, but these are things that, uh, highly sensitive people struggle with. Mm -hmm. Um, E in the acronym stands for emotional reactivity. So if you want to think of like, just having a rich inner world with these deep thoughts and also these deep emotions and the full palette. I always describe it like you've got the, all the colors in the palette and then all the shades Mm -hmm. and that's the emotional inner inner world of a highly sensitive person. Mm -hmm. So their, their range of emotion is really quite impressive (laughs) and they have, it's not a bipolar thing, but they have deep highs and deep lows with that. So, um, they really feel their feelings in the moment. Um, and after the moment as well, (laughs) (laughs) and E also stands for empathy. So highly sensitive people are very sensitive to tuning into other people's moods, Mm -hmm. facial expressions, body language. They're able to kind of read what's going on, but also feel it to some extent in their own body. Mm -hmm. There's even evidence that highly sensitive people have like more active mirror neurons. So our brains are actually more active in the part that mirrors the people in our environment. Interesting. It is very interesting.
2: (laughs) What's the last, what's the last letter there?
4: Yeah. The last one, uh, on top of all, like the obvious, like kind of reactivity and emotional stimulation. We have the gift of sensing subtleties. Mm. So there's the obvious things that are gonna um rattle your sensitivities, but we also sense subtle changes. Mm-hmm. Um we notice like very subtle changes and subtle, subtle flavors, subtle uh, every like it's we're noticing things that other people wouldn't notice. Yeah. So, a random example is a highly sensitive fish because it actually highly sensitive goes across like species. Cool. So, highly sensitive fish will like 15% of fish <laughs> will find the less toxic water to swim in. Like, if they, yeah, they don't poison the fish, but if they make it some of it slightly like less healthy for mm-hmm. the
3: fish
4: yeah the highly sensitive fish they find the areas to to go to that are have the cleanest clearest water and same with cows like they'll find the best grass like there's 15 percent that are wow. finding the best grass to graze on yeah so it's I know it's a little bit mind-blowing when that's you really... start to realize it <laughs> yeah and it just that's really
2: cool and it And it makes me wonder about this other question that was coming up was just like you did mention the neurons and the Mm -hmm. neuroneurons in the brain, but like, how are we identifying people that are highly sensitive people? Is it because of like the something that's going on in their brains or is it more like DNA based? Like I,
4: that's a good question. Um, It's they consider it a trait. Okay. So it's not something that changes throughout your lifetime. Mm -hmm. So that could be, you know, um, uh, happening at a brain level, but the interesting thing about the DNA level, Mm -hmm. like they, uh, some research and, you know, theories on highly sensitive people is like right now it only serves the human population to have about 15 to 20% of us be highly sensitive. But if suddenly it was, uh, advantageous, like for survival for like 85 or more to be highly sensitive,
3: mm-hmm. like
4: the theory is that it would begin to shift. So perhaps it is a DNA thing. Like maybe there is a <laughs> DNA component and right now it's a trait that isn't like as dominant, but over time, if it served the survival of the species, like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like,
2: even as you're answering the question, I'm like, well, it has to be in our DNA. Like (laughs) (laughs) it's in our brains. It's in our DNA. That's a really good way of
4: putting it. I thought that exactly when you said it, like, yeah, if it's our brains, it's our DNA. Right. And, and yeah, but it's a trait that has the potential to shift if it if it uh, in the if it's population. needed, yeah, exactly. That's so fascinating. Yeah, like we could save the world because we're HSP. <laughs> oh my gosh, fellow
2: HSP peoples, like of yourself. yeah,
3: like
4: uh, <sighs> let's start reproducing. <laughs> You wouldn't know
2: if it your child would come out as highly sensitive. That, that's true. So. That's, that's a good point.
4: And yeah, two non highly sensitive people can have a highly sensitive child. So yeah, yeah, so they're, it's fascinating. They just show up when they're needed. It seems. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Interesting.
2: Interesting. Interesting. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned previously. Mm-hmm. In our previous chats that have not been recorded, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you wanted to talk about storytelling, and yeah I'm really curious as to how does that show up in your work, and also what did
3: you,
2: any and everything that you wanted to talk about it in regards to healing and your practice and people,
4: yeah. <laughs> That that's interesting. Um, did want to talk about storytelling? Um, I think that I like. I really liked it. It actually gave me goosebumps when you called me a space holder because that is a big part of my job that mm-hmm. obviously doesn't typically go in my job description, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's absolutely accurate. And yeah. um, I think. Telling our stories is fundamentally healing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I have something more uh, elaborate to say than that, but definitely, uh, I, I am very aware that as I sit and do my work and have some input,
3: mm-hmm.
4: that there, you know, that I'm, I'm collecting and and having the honor of. Uh, being witness to important pieces of people's stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is transformative. And I think I would like, even though I'm not an expert in this, I would give a nod to like narrative therapy, for example, um, that really honors the story. Uh, the therapist works very hard, like not to alter the language of the client in any way, but will help them reframe, how they're showing up in their own story, Mm -hmm. you know, by Mm -hmm. asking questions. Is there any other way to look at this? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and yeah, how we situate ourselves in our own narrative is really powerful. And if we notice a theme, um, that's disempowering in our own narrative, we, we can with, with a therapist or without at any point, like really rewrite that and uh, reclaim that for ourselves. If we're noticing themes in our story where we come up, show up as this character, like say the victim, you know, but is there a way to reframe that? It's not always obvious and that could be a big piece of work. So perhaps I shouldn't have said the victim, but like, is there a theme? Am I always, am I always the, the odd one out? Am I always Mm. the, whatever, I don't know. Like there might be themes that show up and it's, you know, it's important to kind of pay attention to how you situate yourself in your own narrative. I think. Mm. Does that make sense? It
2: definitely does make sense. And it's just, it has me thinking like I can bring myself into this. I don't want to make it a therapy session or anything like that, but um, (laughs) like the narrative of like, being bullied or something. Yes, yes, yes. Like you know, and it's just like, how do we? I guess what like what was coming into my mind earlier was just like, how do you guide somebody to tell their story in the way that,
4: like they need to. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Man, jump in right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. So. That's an art for sure, but I think that listening in a non-judgmental way, not putting your filters on it,
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, letting them hear what they're saying about themselves. Um, like sometimes we don't even know how, what we're thinking until we say it out loud on some level. Like, uh, or we we hear it differently when we hear the words come out of our mouth. So. It, there's so many different ways, I guess, to guide someone. I forget exactly what you said, but to see themselves in a better way in their narrative, like it, but I think the quality of listening when the story first comes out mm-hmm. is essential. Cause like if, If someone's feeling shame about something, I feel like I'm going to go Brené Brown on this one. That's
3: okay. (laughs) Go for it. We like her here.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, if someone's feeling shame about something and then they tell the story and you're like, oh my God, like, I can't even believe like you did that, which obviously no therapist would Mm. say, by the way, but but people say these things to each other. Like, how could you, or like, how can you live with yourself? Like, Mm. okay, that is never going to help them redirect the narrative in a way that um puts them in a better situation it's just going to double down on the narrative reinforce the narrative mm-hmm. so the quality of how a story is received the quality of listening in uh, i don't want to say totally neutral but like a t- just compassionate way mm-hmm. and with total non-judgment that's mm-hmm. the very beginning of of helping a person shift their story because it, it hit like, I don't know, like warmth or it hit Mm -hmm. a safe (laughs) space is a great word. Uh, it it landed in a safe space. So that story doesn't have to be as scary, like the next time they tell it or Mm -hmm. even revisit it in their own mind. Mm -hmm. So, so the details of how, narratives are shifted in therapy um mm-hmm. like differ from therapist to therapist and from therapy modality to therapy modality mm-hmm. but I would just say for all of us because this is something we can all do if we're a therapist or not a therapist mm-hmm. how a story is received is is like kind of uh, a birthplace or of, of change mm-hmm. yeah. yeah
2: definitely mm-hmm. And that kind of, that speaks to the transformational aspect that you had yeah. mentioned before, which like when there is that full on safe space, that person is actually listening to them and holding that space. And like, yeah. however you're doing that, um, depending on the situation, but yeah, the there's, do you want to speak on that transformational aspect and how that storytelling has like that you've seen, Yeah.
4: So what I'm going to do is, is actually talk a little bit about EMDR therapy, which is like something I'm like, I'm internationally certified in that therapy. It's the main therapy I use for, for treating PTSD, um, Mm -hmm. in my practice. And, uh, so I'm not a narrative therapist, but I feel like big nod to all narrative therapists, like they have a beautiful way of, of navigating this. And mm-hmm. In my practice, um, from an EMDR therapy perspective, um, uh, I don't want to get too technical, but we use bilateral stimulation to help them reprocess specific moments of trauma that they've lived. Mm-hmm. That's what I do with my clients. And there's a big process to get prepared to do that kind of trauma work. And then once you go get into the trauma work, it's, um, well, it's quite, it's exactly transformative. And so in my practice, I would say I let the bilateral stimulation do the work. So we would be working on a specific trauma. They usually hold things we call tappers that alternate back and forth in the two hands, or it could be eye movements back and forth or music going back and forth, but it, it stimulates uh, a very ideal environment in the mind for processing and reprocessing Mm -hmm. and getting out of stuck patterns. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what happens in these situations, and I'll say it's like when you're, if you break your arm, your body knows how to, heal your arm. If you Mm -hmm. get traumatized, you can stay in a traumatic, traumatized pattern for a long time, but your mind has the key in there. It wants to heal just like your broken Mm -hmm. arm wants to heal. Like it doesn't want to stay stuck. Mm -hmm. So when I add in the EMDR therapy and it, it, kind of helps things get unstuck. It's like connections are being made mm-hmm. and, their, and their narrative is, I don't want to say magically, but almost magically shifting in front of my eyes. Like mm-hmm. I check in with with my clients every like 45 seconds to a minute um, while they're going through the process and there's a shift and there's a shift and there's a shift and, and, it, and it might go from like, um, like the beginning, the trauma might leave them with the feeling, uh, the thought, sorry, I'm worthless. And at the end, they're like, you know, I have value. And, it, and it, I know this sounds just like magic. Cause it's like, it's hard to see what's going on in this black box of EMDR, <laughs> but there's these like really magical moments where, um, like connections that I couldn't mm. even Introduce Cause I don't know everything the person has ever lived through, mm-hmm. but their, their wealth of self-knowledge begins to like come online and click pieces together that hadn't clicked together before. Mm-hmm. And it creates this transformation at the level of thoughts, emotions, and the body. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a very like holistic, transformational process. I don't know. Like if you have more questions, please ask. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. there's a lot of gray zones in what I said, but it, that's how essentially how EMDR works. Okay. Yeah.
2: So are they, the person might, my- let's say me, I'd be telling my story as I'm receiving the EMDR or I'm just literally like sitting there and breathing and holding or listening or following the eye movements.
4: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. what we do is we, we do an assessment. So we set up the memory. Mm -hmm. Um, So you will tell part of your story, but interestingly, you only have to tell the worst part of that (laughs) story. piece of your story. Mm-hmm. So I'll, uh, in the beginning I ask, I'll say, what do you want to name? Speaking of narratives, what do you want to name this memory? Mm-hmm. as if it was a play or a chapter in a book or a movie, like let's give it a name. And that's what we're going to call it when we work on it. So mm-hmm. already we are actually weaving in a bit of narrative and naming, mm-hmm. naming things is powerful, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'll uh, say, what was the worst of this memory, you know, that you just, and then they give me the details. I suss out, okay, the perspective from all five senses. Okay. What did you see? what did you hear? Mm -hmm. What did you smell or taste? What did you feel on your skin? And we get all those details. And then I ask what negative thought fits with that memory that's still with you today, you know? And then I get, a list of emotions and a list of body sensations. And I get them to rate it on a scale from zero to 10. How distressing is this for you right now? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And when we have all that information, which is rich and intense, uh, that, but they never have to tell their story more than that. Like Mm -hmm. that's it. Then we move into the bilateral stimulation and every minute or so, like it will depend on the client. I'll check in. And, and I'll say, you know, take a deep breath, let it go. What's coming up now. Mm-hmm. And it could be like, uh, I'm randomly thinking of something that happened to me 10 years ago. And I'm like, okay, go with that. Mm-hmm. And eventually it all coalesces into like coherent new narrative and way of holding the memory in the mind and body. Mm. Yeah. Cool.
2: It's yeah. very, like I've personally have been working with a therapist for the last two years and our practice, what we use is emotional freedom techniques. So it's, it's very similar in that sense. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about like, because it's clear that trauma is held in our bodies and Mm -hmm. it's in our nervous systems and it's in our physiology, which then affects our minds. But from coming from that therapist, that clinical psychologist perspective, can you dive deeper into that and like explain it for others.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've definitely had some training in somatic, um, trauma processing. So, but I do want to explain it in an accessible way. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay. I think, uh, let me see. So there's so much work on how the body holds, holds on to trauma. And I guess I would say, this isn't going to clarify the issue, but in EMDR therapy, the body is the last thing we check in with. Like Mm -hmm. we've got the thoughts on board. We've got the emotions on board. We've got a new positive thought like, Installed and on board, like by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we check in with the body, and the body will tell us. Like, sometimes people, once they've done all that work, they're like, Yeah, my body is calm and clear when I think of this memory. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's something like, there's something that still feels weird in my stomach. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've done all this cognitive, emotional work, but my stomach is still telling, like, feeling sick. So it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, just go to that spot in your body. We're going to keep using the bilateral stimulation and just notice it. Like let, let yourself know that you're paying attention to it and just see what comes up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be quite dramatic. It could be like, wow, I, I just feel like this flood of information that I hadn't accessed yet Mm -hmm. is now available to me. It can be very overwhelming sometimes Mm -hmm. because our body, like it's like a gatekeeper, like until, Mm -hmm. until the body is at peace with a trauma, like our whole system is not at peace with it. So -hmm. that's why it's like the last step in EMDR. And also in, in an EMDR process, it could be like my stomach doesn't feel right, but it could just fade once you have the, compassion and empathy for yourself to pay attention to your body. Mm -hmm. It could fade quickly. So I feel like, yeah, I feel like I'm like sort of not answering your question. So that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, But but I also like want like where my mind is going with this, Mm -hmm. but I don't want you or anyone listening to like do this and and get themselves overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you do have if you are very, very good at holding space for yourself, you can really, when you're having a strong emotion, you can go in and just like kind of ask, like, where is this showing up in my body? I think mm-hmm. like this, when I talk about emotional literacy, there's naming the emotion. Mm-hmm. but if we take emotional literacy farther, it is a full body awareness of like where are the urges and where are the, where am I holding this? Because there is Mm -hmm. a physical pattern that correlates with the emotion. So this is like advanced emotional literacy. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you go, if you go to the spot in your body where the emotion feels most intense, Mm -hmm. you can ask questions like, okay, what shape is this? What, how big is it? What color is it? Mm -hmm. What texture does it have? And then you like activate this like somatic knowing Mm
3: -hmm. that
4: you have. Um, we don't tap into it very often, but you can, Mm -hmm. and you just, and then you can actually begin to have what is like a dialogue with that part of your body. Like, so I'm, I'm noticing you, Like, I know that this emotion doesn't define me, but it's here today and I'm noticing you. What is it that my body is trying to tell me? What is this feeling that feels like a spiky ball trying to tell me what is it Mm -hmm. here for today? And, or what do I need to say to this part of myself that's feeling so achy and wounded and Mm -hmm. visceral? You know, what do I need to say to it? And if you can have that dialogue, there's a lot of transformation that can occur. Um, And I I still don't know if I've like spoken to the mystery of how trauma stays in the body, but it, but let's, I could just say it stays in the nervous system Mm -hmm. and our nervous system creates patterns in our body. So how could it not stay in the body? Yeah. And then it's, I
2: love that there are so many different modalities that are available these days to be able to, help us release those traumas that are stuck in our bodies and have been potentially stuck there forever. Yeah. Like, like we look at what's coming to mind right now is like, um, intergenerational trauma. I'm not sure if you know, like, do you, are you familiar? Does that come up in your line of work at all? Or like,
4: yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Um, I mean, EMDR with EMDR, you're always getting um, a full uh, family history, mm-hmm. so you can often see the patterns, like yeah. repeating themselves, and it's it is really interesting. Um, I love uh, this idea.
3: Uh, what's
4: the word? Like, I, there's some. But yeah, like, I think that I keep getting this feeling, whether it's right or wrong, that a lot of people like our age and younger Mm -hmm. are like, kind of like, and maybe even a little bit older. I'm not sure Mm -hmm. where the cutoff is for this. There's lots of people out there, but there, there's a lot of us really doing the work of breaking intergenerational trauma. And it's incredibly brave. It's incredibly resilient. It's incredibly like like life-changing for the individual, but I think with a ripple effect to the family and depending on your beliefs, like potentially the ancestors as well. So, so like, I think people who are doing that work of breaking intergenerational trauma, I like, I'm getting goosebumps. Like it's one of the bravest things that people do. And I see a lot of young people doing it. And I like, it blows my mind every time.
2: Yeah, well, it comes to a point where it's like maybe it's the highly sensitive ones of us or something, but like we're just like we can't handle this like toxic environment, which was potentially in our bodies from birth because yeah. of our ancestors and whatnot. But yeah, I'm just like I'm having so many thoughts now. I'm just like, we're walking, there's so much trauma in the world right now. And I'm like really grateful that you're here with me and sharing this space and speaking to it and everything like that. And, um, I do have a question about like if somebody is going through a hard time and they're not really vocalizing it because they don't have their confidence within their voice, their truth, they, they, they're stuck. Mm -hmm. How can we as individuals, support them in that and like how can like how can we help them find that help
4: okay so in this scenario are is the like our are, are, <laughs> the person are we noticing someone that we're assuming is stuck or do we know they're stuck it depends
2: I'm like, <laughs> I know that's so broad. I'm just like everybody. <laughs> um,
4: so yeah. If, how can we as like friends or community members help someone connect with the help they need?
2: Yeah. That's basically, that, that, that's kind that, of essentially what I was trying
4: to ask. Thank you. Okay, I didn't know. Cause there was like, there was like a couple subtle things there, like someone who's locked up and not talking, mm. how do we get them connected? That's, that's a very interesting question. And it's different. And from, there's that too. So that's yeah. like, it's almost
2: like there is like two questions okay. in that one. So
4: let me ask, answer the one about if someone's not talking first and then okay. like generally how we can help when I okay. think we see someone struggling. So, um, yeah, I think that the interesting thing is, uh, a lot of people are verbal and I do think we should, there's a lot in sharing the story and verbal processing and some people aren't. And I, I I would say there, that I think even, I think it was Freud who said like life is the best psychotherapist. And, and having said that, I believe there is great value in going to psychotherapy or else I obviously wouldn't even be a psychotherapist. (laughs) Right. But, um, each person, like we can't, necessarily know what's best for each person. Each person knows what's best and each person is ready when they're ready, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you do have someone that seems really like try to talk, try to talk to them like anyone, but if they're not ready, like it's okay. Like they, Mm -hmm. I trust everyone's process and they'll Mm -hmm. connect with the resources that are meaningful to them in the right time. Like, so I wouldn't I w- I don't think this was your intention in the question, but I wouldn't ever force it on someone like you've got to go to therapy or you've got to tell your story or I can tell something's on your mind mm-hmm. and you have to talk about it because mm-hmm. people are in their own process and in their own patterns and it's okay if that includes like being shut down or folded mm-hmm. in in on oneself. Like mm-hmm. is that healthy for the long term? Like no, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. And And yet there's a lot of people in, in the world using those like shut down, Uh, turning inside myself kind of coping skills and (laughs) are they doing it wrong? Like, Nope, that's one way that humans cope, Mm -hmm. you know? And when they're ready for another kind of coping and a different level of growth or openness, they'll, they'll get there, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I just encourage like, um, people in their environment to be supportive, like to treat them like to just be, how you would be with anybody basically. Yeah. And, and if they open up all the more bonus, <laughs> because then you've kind of noticed like, okay, yeah. Like re- I was kind of ready for this conversation, you know? Yeah. But, but until then I would like totally recommend like trusting their process and treating them like, like you would want to be treated that could be difficult because lots of people <laughs> want to talk, but treating them how you imagine they want to be treated, like mm-hmm. just like who they are with dignity, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And if worse comes to worse, the person can just ask the other individual, like, what is it that
4: you need? Absolutely. We, yeah. Cause we can't assume that we know, right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think um, that was something I've had in my notes that came from my, Pre-podcast walk, but we need like curiosity, openness, empathy, and respect Hmm. with other people right now. Yeah. And not thinking like, oh, I you've been through a pandemic. I know what you need. You need a therapist. (laughs) 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 Like maybe they don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right.
2: So maybe they maybe they need a good healthy meal cooked for them by somebody else, or like
4: they need to go for a swim or Exactly. So be curious,
3: Mm -hmm. big
4: curiosity, big curiosity. And, and like asking them what they need is like a perfect, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: like starting point. Like,
2: yeah. yeah. Which then also brings us kind of like full circle to help the individual come to find that deeper voice of of their truth. Right. And so by us, coming in and asking our community members or people that need support these clarifying questions when we see that they might need that support it might just help them unravel it a little bit more yeah if that makes sense
3: Exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm also curious i'm very curious actually i'm always <laughs> curious i noticed that in like listening back to each episode, I'm like, Oh, I say curious quite a lot.
3: <laughs> and I,
2: I I tried to find another word for it, but I don't think there are one, any, yeah. but that's okay. It's a good one. Um, so I'm curious, like what inspires you to continuously show up in this field considering, that it is a demanding field that requires a lot of space holding and emotional resiliency and literacy and all that kind of fun stuff.
4: That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> why I'm
2: talking, I'm like, that's a big one. It's okay. Yeah,
4: like it's huge. <laughs> we have the space. <laughs> yeah. Um. Like. very tentative to say this, but speaking of stories, uh, each client, well, you develop your own rapport with each client, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yep. And I, I don't get tired of hearing the stories or, or being a witness to the process or a participant in the process. And like it might, I feel like this would sound wrong. So I don't know. I don't know if my clients would like to be referred to like this, but it's like each is like their own episode, but like I leave, I leave it for a week, maybe a month, maybe three months, depending where they're they are in their process. And it's like, I don't know. It's like, how could you stop reading a book? Do, do Do you know what I mean? How could you put it down? Like, Mm -hmm. and, and they're people. So they obviously mean more to me than like an episode or a book, but, but that is sort of like inspiring in a way to be like, or, or maybe it is also that curiosity actually bringing Mm -hmm. that word back in. Like, so where, where is this going? Where are they going to take this? Like Mm -hmm. what is going to be important to them next? Like where, Mm -hmm. how is this trauma gonna shift like there's I think having an openness and a curiosity actually is part of my inspiration to like like stay engaged mm-hmm. yeah that's beautiful I love yeah, that thank you I, I kind of like had to I kind of like knew <laughs> the part about feeling like the, like it's like the and in the next episode, we'll find out what they did this month, like, you know, um, but it's like, actually it is about curiosity and openness. So that was like a cool light bulb moment for me.
2: I love that. I love that you just had a light bulb moment here. Ah, that's so good. That's, ah, inspiration. Exactly. Ah, that's so great. Um. We are coming closer to
4: the end. Yes. Yeah. I thought a of question. one more thing. Oh I yeah. Go for it. And, yeah. and like, honestly, the inspiration also comes mm-hmm. from people actually get better. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. <laughs> people actually get better and there's, an, there's no uh, substitute. There's no feeling anywhere else in my life that actually substitutes for that. Yeah, experience sharing that with someone and being part of that and being led in Mm. to that piece of healing. Like Mm -hmm. people get better, people change, people shift and transform. And that's amazing. And also in all of like, like you mentioned, I don't think you said it, it, but like there is a high Mm -hmm. risk for burnout and compassion fatigue in this profession. Mm -hmm. And everybody Mm -hmm. probably experiences that at some point I would Mm -hmm. say, Uh, um, I don't know, that's not a fair statistic, but a lot of us do. Um, but there's also something called vicarious resilience. So instead of just focusing on the negative of vicarious trauma, you can build vicarious resilience. You're like, wow, like I I am amazed at what this human did, you know, and I didn't do it, but I know this huge story of resilience now in me. And like, I can add that to my own resilience because it's amazing. Yeah.
2: That's that's like, it's, yeah, it's empowering for you and your clients, the people that are seeking support to have that witness in their Mm -hmm. healing journey, which is just like, and you actually mentioned like, which is something that I constantly have been like. It's always in my mind is like how we are just we naturally want to heal. We naturally absolutely- just all, our entire being wants to do that. So it's like our minds do too, and our emotional bodies and our nervous system also wants that, and it can. And with the support and compassion and care that and nurturing that we require from others and ourselves, like we can. We can do that. We can do the things. There is hope. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my words. That's yeah. really. I I appreciate you sharing your uh, inspirations for con- your continued work and efforts and being a spaceholder in this world. Um, Thank you. I'm wondering: Is there anything else that you want to? to share, advice, anything, anything
4: else you want to add at all? Hmm. Interestingly, we got to like most of my notes, mm-hmm. especially the ones that came to me on my walk. Um, but I would, I think if I could just add one last thing as a very simple self-care practice, because there's a whole bunch of, um, self-care things we can do for ourselves. And we, I think we're mostly aware of them in general, like get good sleep, eat well, exercise, you know, have a relaxation practice, have time for yourself, have time with friends. There's like long lists and you can find them online, of course. But one thing that I find really important is just like we were talking about, how would we help a friend if we weren't sure what they needed, you would ask what they need it's really important in this time and in all times to ask what do I want and what do I need? And, and like, not think I have to go for a run or I have to take a shower or I have to do something mm-hmm. but like let the, what you need to do, like emerge from mm-hmm. inside. And I'm going to add one little anecdote here is like during the pandemic, I can't even tell you how many times I transformed an evening by just putting on warm socks, like, Mm. like by, by being like, what do I need? And just like body doing a body scan and breathing. And I'm like, Mm. my feet are really cold. So I would like go get my comfiest socks. And suddenly I was like watching a movie and having a tea. And like, I just by meeting that one small need, it Mm -hmm. transformed my level of comfort and my level of like in the momentness or whatever. Like, and it's amazing how just like, asking yourself, what do I want or need can like make you aware of something small that you can actually do for yourself. And if it's something Mm -hmm. big that you can't do for yourself in the moment, try to find a small creative way to do it for yourself in the moment. Mm. Yeah. Mm, I love that.
2: Yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Um, (laughs) Yes, of course. Yeah. I, I'm just like, ah, oh, I like that. There's warm socks and stuff like it. It's just so simple. It can be, that it can sneaky. be, it can be so simple, but we, we overcomplicate it because we get stuck and we get, we're not aware of our emotions and our thought processes or mm-hmm. our neurosis essentially of where we're yeah, getting stuck even just like energetically within our body or something like that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have one more question for you. Cool. Um, This is another one that I ask all of the guests. And because I like to end things off on a lighter note, Mm -hmm. as our world and everything can be, it's a challenging thing. We're all spinning on a space rock. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) What does joy mean to you?
4: Wow. okay joy joy is like full body happiness Mm. it's like uh like a radiance and fulfillment are words that are coming to my mind um it's, I have a very interesting relationship with joy, believe it or not. So I'm like actually limiting myself a little bit. <laughs> but, no,
2: I think your answers were like beautiful, okay. and you don't have to elaborate more if you don't
4: want to. Like one word is well, enough. <laughs> awesome, but I do want to say one more thing.
3: <laughs> okay, I, really,
4: uh, I think it's in Eckhart Tolle's book, Awakening of a New Earth. Mm-hmm. Like, um. I'll probably get this wrong, wrong, but whatever. Um, enthusiasm was another word that came up mm. uh, uh, in my mind. And like, it, com- I believe it comes from this term, like in Greek or Latin, that's like, entheos. So to like, in God somehow, like, so mm-hmm. to be enthusiastic about something mm-hmm. you need to be like with it in the presence of, of God, Like, Mm -hmm. so I feel like joy and enthusiasm, they're not the exact same thing, but, but like that word of like that with God in, in this, Mm -hmm. in this big emotion, you know, like an
2: embodiment with God.
4: Yeah. That's an even better way of saying it. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool.
2: I like that because it is an overwhelming, like it's an all encompassing feeling.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
2: Cool. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much for joining me on Bid on our mind podcast. It means a lot to, ha- to me to have you here to talk to the folks that listen here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
4: Thank well, you. It was a pleasure to be here. And I was really, um, like honored to be part of your podcast. It was really a pleasure and a really wonderful experience to get to share. Cool. Thank
2: you so much. It's been wonderful. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon.
3: Okay, great.
2: Flexibility
0: is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. Thank